Welcome to the 420th of the COVID Calls. This is a daily discussion of the COVID-19 pandemic with a diverse collection of disaster experts. My name is Scott Gabriel Knowles. I'm a historian of disasters at the Korea Advanced Institute of Science and Technology. I'm coming to you live from Daejeon, South Korea. Today, I welcome historian and psychotherapist Charles B. Strozier back to COVID Calls for a second visit. Just a reminder, you can usually catch COVID Calls live on weekdays at 7 p.m. Eastern Time. Just go to the COVID Calls YouTube channel to watch. This is a special COVID Calls at 7 p.m. Sunday. You can hear COVID Calls anytime recorded as podcasts on Spotify, iTunes, Podbean, or anywhere you get podcasts. You can also keep up with COVID Calls via Twitter using the handle at US of Disaster or at COVID Calls. Please do help spread the word and send suggestions for future guests and future topics. And as always, please feel free to suggest yourself as a future guest. I've been reading an obituary or a story of advocacy for those impacted by the pandemic. I'd like to continue that now. The headline is, tributes paid to NHS National Health Service psychologist who died of COVID-19. This appeared in The Guardian, was written by, <clears throat> excuse me, was written by Helen Pidd and appeared December 6, 2020. Tributes have been paid to an NHS doctor who has died after a prolonged battle with COVID-19. Ali Mantala Bozos, a clinical psychologist and bereavement specialist in Halifax, West Yorkshire, died on the 26th of November, 2020. She was 50 and had four children aged 11 to 17 with her husband, a Greek Orthodox priest. Colleagues said she had dedicated her life and career to helping people and supporting their mental health and well-being. One described her as so full of life and a beautiful person to be around, and as a charismatic and compassionate, hardworking colleague and a friend who will stay in our minds forever. Another said, Callie was a genuine, Callie was a genuine, kind-hearted individual who made time to build relationships, bring a smile to others' faces, and put all her and put her all into her clinical work while being family-oriented and a cornerstone of her community. In a statement, the Southwest Yorkshire Partnership NHS Foundation Trust said, it is with heavy hearts that we have said goodbye to one of our colleagues, Callie Montala Bozos, who passed away following her prolonged battle with COVID. Born in Greece, Montala Bozos became a clinical psychologist in the Calderdale Core Mental Health Team and part of the Trust's Bereavement Development Group. She worked in the Laura Mitchell Health and Wellbeing Center, providing mental health support for older people, where a therapy room will now be named in her honor. Bob Webster, chief executive of the Trust, said to those who will be grieving the loss of Callie, friends, family, and colleagues, I send my deepest and heartfelt sympathies. My thanks go to Callie for the dedication and commitment she showed to the people of Calderdale throughout the time she worked with us. She spent her life helping people in their time of need, both in and out of work, and the loss to the communities she lived in and served will be felt deeply. Callie was an inspiration and will be very much missed by us all. obituary of Callie Mantala Bozos, who died in November 2020, COVID-19.
Okay, I'd like to turn to the conversation for today, and I'm really pleased to welcome Charles B. Strozier back to COVID Calls. Let me introduce him. Charles Strozier is Professor Emeritus of History from the John Jay College and the Graduate Center of the City University of New York, and he's a practicing psychoanalyst. He's twice been nominated for a Pulitzer Prize in 2001 and 2011, and he was a finalist for the Lincoln Prize in 2017. He's the author of scores of articles on history and psychoanalysis, and the author or editor of 13 books, including Heinz Coet, The Making of a Psychoanalyst. Also, Until the Fires Stopped Burning, 9-11 in New York City in the Words and Experiences of Survivors and Witnesses, which appeared in 2011 with Columbia University Press. Among many other works, Chuck Strozier, it's great to see you. Welcome back to COVID Calls. Thank you, Scott. It's good to be here. This is an amazing, an amazing program you've uh, maintained through uh, through the pandemic. We were chatting just a little bit before we came on about the weird compression of COVID time, and we talked on May 6, 2020, last. And just for a point of reference, at that time, there were 71,526 deaths from COVID in the United States. And now we're over over nine hundred thousand. I think is the latest the latest count. And of course, that's undoubtedly uh, an undercount um, because of people, you know, not not having it counted. So you, you know, and it's it's it, it, there's an organic history. It's amazing because in May 2020, we were we were totally confused and scared and we had no idea when there would be a vaccine and there was no treatment. And as we know now, the treatments that they were doing were the wrong treatments and keeping people too long on the ventilators. And I mean, I had a colleague who, a good colleague actually, who I worked on a book with who died just shortly after last time we talked. Mm -hmm. Um, And, 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 that lasted, you know, it, it got, it continued to be bad, and then it spread around the country. It was like a, like a, 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 a liquid that, 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 that oil slick coming under the mm-hmm. under the door, and it and it spread throughout the country, and sort of New York became less of a, a, a place of 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 crisis and 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 despair but then it you know other places and then and then with the delta i mean it's just i mean you've been following it on a day-to-day basis but it's 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 you know there's the the sequence of the of the way of the 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 biology of the actual virus Mm -hmm. and 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 that's had its own history and then there's the reactions to it and the and the the politics which which, you know now with the vaccine and with omicron it it, it's almost like it's a different it's a different disease a different the the pandemic is so different now from what it was in may 2020 that it's almost uh, uh, unrecognizable i mean just today just i I read a couple hours ago that queen elizabeth has tested positive Queen Elizabeth, of course, Charles last week tested Prince Charles and Camilla, his wife, and now, as of today, Queen Elizabeth. But it's not the great crisis. I mean, she said it's like, like a cold. So she clearly she was vaccinated, right. and uh, you know she was exposed probably by Charles. Um, but 
Can you imagine if in May 2020, Queen Elizabeth had tested positive? Oh, my God. It would have been a, an, a horrible crisis for England and, and for the country. You know, this beloved queen who's been on the throne for 70 years. Uh, I, you know, I have so many questions for you. But since we jumped into this, I, I just want to follow up on that. Is that um, that difference has something to do with the number of people who've, who've died? And so there's a sort of a numbness to the to the numbers or does it have more to do with the the fact that we have a handle on it now to a certain extent. I mean, you met, you referenced in May of 2020, we didn't have therapies. We were giving the wrong therapies. People are still making sense of what it actually was. Now we know what it is and the tolls are high. And so if the queen gets it, you know, there's a sort of blase attitude to it, which I find really irritating, honestly, but it, that's how people react to it. No, no. And of course the, 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 the course, of the virus itself, of the pandemic, and whether it's easing into a different kind of, you know, an endemic, uh, uh, is is that that's moved on one track, and then the political reaction to it, uh, and the the growth of the 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 uh, anti-vaxxer movement, which I just find astonishing. I mean, it 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 never ceases to amaze me, the anti-vaxxer movement. I mean, you know, easily a third, if not. 40% of the population in America re refuses to get, and it's right and left. I mean, you know, the, 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 the California uh, ca uh, granola crunchy types um, are equally opposed to the vaccine along with, you know, QAnon right wingers. Um, and then you have this extraordinary demonstration in Ottawa. I mean, who would have thought that the Canadians would, I didn't know right-wing conspiracism was this virulent in Canada. I thought they, I thought they were more sane than, uh, you know, than Americans. You've been following conspiracy thinking for a long time in the United States and around the world. Has this surprised you? I mean, the the way that it's manifested itself, or is it, is, in some ways, did you feel like it was it was predictable once? There was political gain to be made by it. Yeah, and 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 I think political gain is the is the right term, um, and it's a, it's a very multifaceted movement because it has it has people who sort of traditional uh, extreme right wing paranoid types uh, who are purely political um, who have embraced it um, probably mainly for opportunistic reasons. But then you have people who are, you know, the evangelical uh, religious right, who are often anti-vaxxers and who are, you know, all of them are very suspicious of government. And therefore, they don't they don't they they they, they, they don't they don't trust. And, and you know, the, the, oddly, this is one of it's the one issue that Donald Trump was actually good on. He, he poured money to support the development of the vaccine, and he, he deserves credit for uh, having, having pushed the vaccine. I mean, he, he, he came up with some nutty recommendations along the way, yeah. uh, which, which we can, we, I don't know whether we should forgive him for it, but at least, you know, accept that that, that was part of his sort of uh, craziness. But he, and he got himself vaccinated. 
you know, and, and of course he had COVID. I remember that the images of him going out to the helicopter when he was so wan and, and, and could barely walk. And, and, uh, you know, he had a serious bout of, of, uh, of, of, of COVID, but he recommends the vaccine. He pushed the development of the vaccine and he put, and, and, and the right wing, of course, is very ambivalent uh, about the, the support for Trump, but opposing him recommending the vaccine. So it's become, it's become such a weird issue. So, and it's so sad to see so many people uh, uh, opposing, opposing the vaccine on ideological grounds as though individual freedom is dependent on, uh, uh, you know, and, 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 and American freedom and, 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 and the sense of individual liberty depends on opposing something that is such an obvious uh, uh, benefit to the, uh, to the public. I think, you know, what surprised me the most about that is that I just assumed more people were afraid of dying. Maybe I'm wrong about that, but you know, not only the the people who refuse to be vaccinated, but those who will not get, who have not had the booster, which is low in the United States compared to other countries. So the vaccination rate is low compared to other industrialized countries. Here in Korea, it's 86 percent. United States, it's 70 something percent, and then the boosting rate is well below that. Yeah. I I don't, you know, generalizing about a whole country is a little bit dangerous, as as you well know, but. I just assume from the beginning, people don't want to die of something if they can avoid it. Yeah, no, they've swallowed the Kool-Aid um, and they they uh, uh, they don't want to die. But there are all kinds of reports of people, you know, dying, being in their last breath in uh, uh, ICU units and um, of, of COVID and the doctor explaining to them that they have COVID. And they refuse to, they either refuse to believe it, which is the most extraordinary thing, or they literally on their deathbed, they regret that they didn't get the, the vaccine. Um, you know, it's, it's, I, I, I wrote a piece with a theologian, actually, Ronald uh, uh, Balmer. And um, I, 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 I think there is, I, I, I'm particularly annoyed with evangelical Christians, because the the fundamental well, the, well, the two great commandments according to Jesus, right? The first is love the God is uh, the, the and, and love and honor God above all else. But the second is is love thy neighbor as thyself. Those are the the, the, the two great commandments that Jesus uh, uh, makes at the or or posit at the center. Of of uh, of Christianity, and 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 of his uh, teaching, and it is it is amazing. I mean, the Pope says getting a vaccine is an act of love, but you know, American evangelical Protestant traditions, they have really balked, and they've been at the at the forefront of not mm -hmm. getting uh, the the vaccine, and it, it it's it's we know. If we could get to 90% vaccination, the virus would disappear. And so you're, it, it's not only selfish 
but it is 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 it is against the fundamental teaching of Jesus to not get a vaccine because you endanger you put into danger the life of your of your neighbor which is your literal neighbor but also your loved ones and everybody else in your in 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 community anyway that's I'll get off my soapbox about that but I I, I really and I have family members who are are yeah. you know in-laws who are very much well you know we're both connected to the to the south we're both so from the we, south <laughs> welcome to the south of the southern of the united states right yeah i mean one of the things that um you know the sociology i've been reading about that which i think makes some sense here is that um people it's it's more important that they be part of their group and if the group is going a certain direction, that's what that's the direction they're going to go. Um, and and so the concern has been: How do you take someone who who's received bad advice, like don't get vaccinated, and how do you give some information that that then somehow allows them to not give up their identity, but also not die? And as you point out, and I appreciate your soapbox, um, leaders in all sectors of American life, but particularly you point out here, evangelical Christianity. Um, it's just hard for me to understand how they would choose to message to their communities to forego life-saving treatment. Yeah. Why, why force people to choose between being part of a community of faith and a community of health and safety? I just, I still fundamentally, and I am from the South, and I still fundamentally don't understand that breakdown. Yeah, no, it's mysterious, and and you know part of it's just the effects of propaganda, but it's also people, people being uh, uh, asserting something which is which is false. That that somehow the government is is undermining our individual liberty by encouraging us to have a have a vaccine, and you know there's been it's it's morphed from that's what I was referring earlier the sort of organic history of of COVID. It's morphed from the early days. When really the the psychology of it was this widespread death anxiety, and tremendous fear, and I think the the we we were totally flummoxed. The idea of being isolated and quarantined was alien to everybody's experience. We've never been through that, and there was this tremendous, really bordering on panic, um, uh, the to, in the reaction to. Uh, COVID and, and, you know, scenes of death and destruction and, you know, particularly in Queens at the Queens hospital uh, where they had, you know, trucks, refrigerated trucks with bodies. I mean, this is, this is, these are some of the images right. of, in, of the early days of the, of, of COVID. And, and, and now it's morphed into a political issue. It's morphed into a political issues and you have anti-vaxxers and you have, you, you you know it's it's become a, uh, a, a an issue for the political right to assert, um, and it, it, it and it's it, as, you, as you say it's they've lost sight. Those who are opposing the vaccine have have lost sight of the fact that this is a deadly disease that kills people, uh, and we have available the means of not dying from it. Yeah, the thing that's there's a parallel here, historical parallel, which I want to ask you about, which kind of terrifies me. It, and that's the to the nuclear to the Cold War and um, nuclear stockpiles, because, I mean, 
fundamental to the movement of nuclear abolition throughout the Cold War, and I guess even today, is just to remind people what nuclear weapons do to people. And, and we have some examples that we can point to and show that these are evil weapons and no one survives, it, particularly with the scale of the weapons we have today. Just to bring people back to the reality of death. And yet throughout the Cold War, there's this process of sort of repackaging that as politics, as uh, mutually assured destruction, any, any number of political, you know, foreign policy theories you want to, and it, it, it sanitizes it, it man, makes it managerial, it takes it away from the reality of death. And I, and I worry about that with COVID and what COVID portends, that there's a big chunk of American society and, and other countries around the world with people who are just willing to say, yeah, we're just going to live with it. We're going to accept that. That's just the reality of what we need to keep the, and then they have their reasons for the economy or because we don't like the government. But all of those reasons take us a, a couple of orders of magnitude away from the reality, which is death. And, and you know, historical experience uh, with other uh, plagues uh, is not helpful. So that the, the Black Plague, you know, burned through the population of Europe from 1348 to 1351, killed anywhere from 30 to 40 percent of the population. I mean, it was just wreaked havoc. And then eventually, actually, it came back again in the 1360s. Um, but it 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 wreaked havoc and 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 the sort of herd immunity developed because so many people died that there that there there just weren't the 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 new hosts um and even the even the flu in 1918 1920 had had some of the same course of 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 uh, uh, you know killing what 200 million people worldwide and so it 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 and that the 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 flu was more like I think the plague in the in the 14th century. Then now we have the vaccine, so people have the option of we understand what the 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 COVID is all about, and we have the vaccine. But then people resist resist getting the vaccine, and then it becomes a political struggle now against the. The vaccine, which which is which is new, that that's new and 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 and, and almost incomprehensible. Um, why why people would choose making themselves vulnerable to death and many dying uh, rather than get a, a vaccine? You know, you put on seat belts and you get your right. child immunized for childhood diseases. Why not a vaccine? You know, there's something, there, 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 there's something uh, uh, psychological going on in the culture that that connects the anti uh, 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 the anti vaxxers with other important trends, sort of right wing conspiratorial uh, feelings that the government is. Uh, that, that it, it certainly fits into the extreme polarization. Uh, you know, it's it's become almost a Republican calling card uh, to oppose uh, oppose what the government is doing with. Well, I shouldn't say all Republicans, but the the extreme right.
let me just remind folks that you're listening to COVID Calls, and I'm talking to historian and psychotherapist Charles B. Strozier today. Chuck, I want to come to an um, essay that you wrote with Robert Lifton. And this piece appeared, actually, it's um, March of last year, but it takes us into some territory that I really wanted to ask you about. And I'm going to um, just read a couple lines from this. This appeared in the Bulletin of the Atomic Scientists, March 1, 2021. You write, patients in psychotherapy provide a valuable window into COVID death anxiety. Their voices change, and one of us, you write, and this is referring to yourself, has found and become suffused with dread as they shift from ordinary conflicts involving the self, relationships, and work to the virus. They feel stalked by it, but unable to find the inner resources to deal with its ubiquitous effects. So you have a truly unique vantage point on this pandemic. And particularly now at this passage of time, you've actually been working with people who maybe they're new patients with new anxieties or people who had underlying anxieties that have been changed and modified because of the pandemic. Can you share with me some of what you found? Yes. I, I, from the very beginning, I, I'm, I've always been very interested in dreams. So I record my own dreams. I think about dreams. I've written about dreams. I study dreams. I, and and it, it, I, I feel they're a very, very valuable uh, part of, of psychotherapy. And so when the, when the pandemic began, I, I, I started recording dreams of my patients that seemed to be uh, symbolic, to, to symbolically uh, connect with the the death anxiety that was emerging uh, in the in the country, you know, very quickly, um, and 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 those dreams, um, uh, the most dramatic was one patient who had had who, uh, had for many many years, so I knew him very well, um, and he uh, lived in, a, in 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 New York on the lower side in a in a tall building you know, 30 stories kind of stuff with, with uh, 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 elevators that are were not very big. And so he had this incredible dread and he would dream literally every night for the first year of the mask. He would dream the mask, the, the elastic band would break, you know, and then it would fall. And, and then he would be uh, uh, he would he he would be sick again. Uh, somehow his cancer would come back. You know the way dreams are often often confused. Um, and you, you, I, I mean, the, the the point is this this was ubiquitous. Not 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 that specific image, but the way in which people's dread connected with. Uh, the, with their dreams that evoked this underlying death anxiety that, that, I, that I think, and, and this is what Robert and I were saying, that, that uh, Lifton and I were, were arguing that it, that it was a, a, a something new and startling in the culture of the death anxiety that, that did um, uh, resonate with the kind of collective sense of uh, 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 dread from nuclear weapons that now is more uh, over over half century, uh, well, continuing, um, but is now also attached to uh, climate change. That's sort of apocalyptic fears of the world ending either with a bang or a whimper. Um, and, and, and certainly that, those fears 
which are, you know, they're not constant, but they're, 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 it's like a shadow. It's a shadow on the culture, on the individual, psychologically, but also collectively. It's a shadow that, that sometimes emerges in, in, into our own consciousness and into the culture with greater intensity and 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 um, in baffling ways the the apocalyptic dread is is baffling because it means the death of everything that's what apocalyptic fears is you know it's we, we all die but we know of the apocalyptic because it's the extension of our foreknowledge of our own death into the death of all humanity um and so the 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 the, the response I, I would say in, until the vaccine, mm -hmm. maybe not quite that long, certainly the first year, there was this underlying death anxiety that you could not understand what was happening in America or indeed in the world. You could not understand what was happening except in the in that context of this, this uh, astonishingly important death anxiety. It just occupied everybody's imagination. Everybody's imagination. Um, Just follow up on that a second. So particularly in that first year before the vaccine, I mean, even though people rationally could see that this was not going to be a society, a human extinguish, you know, an event that would extinguish all of human life, it was that un uncertainty of how, how it was playing out and that there was no remedy for it then at a subconscious level was actually invoking the apocalyptic. I mean, is that the connection that you, you draw? Cause I'm really interested in how you, yeah. you do find a dividing line between the availability or the lack of availability of the vaccine seems to be a crucial point. Absolutely crucial point in, in the, in the sort of psychohistorical meaning of the, of the history of the, of the pandemic. And just incidentally, uh, uh, recently, uh, last month, I, I still see this patient, the one who dreamed about the elastic bands breaking and stuff. Um, and I ask him, I mean, you know, when you do psychotherapy, it's not, it's not research. Um, but I was really interested in whether he had stopped having those dreams. And so I asked him and he said, yes, he doesn't have them anymore. And he's been, you know, of course he's been vaccinated and he's still afraid, but he he goes down in the elevator and you know he puts his mask on and goes down the elevator and doesn't have dreams. He's got other problems in his life, but he doesn't have uh, dreams that touch on underlying death anxiety in connection with uh, COVID. What about anxieties um, <clears throat> for people who have family members who've been sick or family members who've died? Are are you seeing that? You know, either in the yeah. people that you know or yeah, in others. Sure. Okay. Sure. Yeah. Well, the, the, I mean, you you know, it's heartbreaking in 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 any any kind of death uh, of a loved one is is heartbreaking. I think I think people I, I I do have patients who where 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 COVID death has touched pretty directly their experience. Um, in fact, I have two patients who came into therapy because their fathers died of COVID early on um, and uh, actually three patients. Well, one, one lost his best friend in the early months of COVID and two lost their fathers. And, and that's what drew them into therapy. And, and that was the basis throughout the summer of 2020 and into the fall and winter 
and uh, for roughly the the first year again that that was very often uh, uh, th- those were themes that entered into psychotherapeutic encounter, into dreams, into uh, other kinds of things. But that led to that process was a kind of mourning. And, uh, uh, you know, when you mourn, particularly in, in, in therapy, you begin to work things through. And, and the mourning process is a way, not of forgetting, but relieving yourself of the pain of the loss. And that experience merged into um, uh, the first, the hope for the, va- the, the expectation of the vaccine and then the presence of the vaccine. And th- th- all of those patients, well, the one who lost his best friend of 37 years, um, basically you know after two years of therapy he had he had he had moved to a different place and and was ready to move on with his life and the two uh, younger people who lost their fathers um <clears throat> are, are still in therapy but th- they haven't they haven't mentioned their their lost father in six months they've moved on it's it's a very interesting kind of uh, uh development does that scale up I mean, you know, what you're suggesting here is a process of mourning through through therapy and discussion, a real real a real work that goes on to achieve some sort of deeper understanding and moving on. But at an individual level, how will that scale or or will it with COVID? Because obviously it feels like we need it at a societal level. I would share one thing with you from what I've learned here in Korea, for example. Um, there've been over about 7,000, over 7,000 deaths here. So they've managed the pandemic incredibly well yeah, wow. in, a, in, a, in an empathetic, humane, scientific, the way you would wish United States would have handled right. it. Right. But that's still a terrible disaster. That's still over 7,000 people and more. And we're the worst of it here because Omicron is just now coming in Korea. And there are a lot of inhibitions against public grieving about COVID here in Korea, because particularly early on, there was a sense of the, that those who got it, that there was a sense of shame attached to it, that they had not followed, that they had let everybody down by getting it. So culturally, it's quite different, but that that sort of need for a societal level And I have to be a little careful here because I'm still learning a lot about South Korean societies. My sense of it right now, though, is that there's a need for a societal level mourning to work through what's happened. And I don't see it happening. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I I, I mean, I'm sure the the situation is different in South South Korea from the United States, but 900,000 people have died. I mean, this is this is a disaster. So how do we remember it? How do we m- memorialize it? You know, we've, you and I have, have studied and written about and taught often about the memorialization of, of 9-11, um, where you had this specific event, you had terrorists fly planes into towers, towers collapsed, uh, other two planes, uh, you know, and, and, and after a lot of mourning and sadness, there was a concerted effort to remember through building a big memorial 
and we have the memorial in New York, and we have a memorial in Shanksville, and we have a memorial at the Pentagon. With, and you and I have tramped through all of those those areas and many other areas looking for memorials. How do you how do you memorialize COVID? You know, the the there is no one place. There's no 9/11 attack. You you we we're, we've been stuck in our in our living rooms. You know, do, do our do our living rooms, our, our our homes, our apartments, become become markers of where we memorialize? No, it's too it's too elusive. It's too it's too amorphous, um, and and yet the 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 memory is is haunting. I, I mean, I think I, I think we've we haven't really even begun to think about what it means in the United States to have nine hundred thousand people die and, right. and i'm sure it'll approach a million before we're all over um and somehow that i think i mean you use the word scale up somehow that's part of that impaired mourning i would in, in contrast to these these you know on a very personal scale I'm, I'm working with in psychotherapy people you know working with these people these 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 young men who lost their fathers to covid and and the older older man who lost his friend of th- 37 years th- this is this is mourning which moved be- because they talked about it they talked with me about it they could relive the experiences and the loss and mourn in a way what what's i think happening in the culture is impaired mourning you know it's like the 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 of uh, uh, I think Germany, after the World War II and the Holocaust, f- had trouble for a generation mourning what they had, what they had caused, what they had been through, what they had been through, and what they had caused. And it was a and 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 I think that's an extreme example, but I think we're facing some of the same, uh, some of the same issues, particularly in the, in the United States, and, and goes back to what we were saying earlier. Somehow it's deeply connected. That impaired mourning is deeply connected with the political confusions around COVID. Uh, around COVID. <laughs> that was a funny, funny slip. I've written a book about a biography of Heinz Kohut. He's, so- always, he's always close <laughs> to your mind. But, and let me follow up on that 9-11 um, you know, since you brought it up and you and I have spent a lot of time thinking about talking about traveling to those memorials and and we would have taught a school together about the 20th anniversary of September 11. Um, if you had been in the United States. Yeah. If I'd been in the U.S. and we'd been able to do such things. And um, I feel that loss. I feel the and it's a loss that's it's not connected to someone dying. It's it's a, maybe a lot a sense of privilege that I can even say it. But um the loss of missed opportunities of fellowship and learning to be with people. That's part of what's been lost as well. So the morning is at, at a number of different notes. You know, it's, it's morning for the things you might traditionally think, you know, unnecessary death, suffering, but also just a chunk of life that's been taken away from people. And, and so I wonder again, like, you know, based on your experience and what can be offered to people? What are the venues that have to be created? I mean, we don't have to be inert about this. We can be active, right? Is that what kind of processes can we 
demand as as citizens or as as humans to help people get through this impairment as you call it to mourning because i think it's this is not something just to lay aside and say oh we'll just get past it right no i agree uh i i don't know really i, I mean i i think we 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 have to just continue to try to um urge people to take care of themselves to have the have the vaccine um and to you know uh oppose at every turn uh ridiculous conspiratorial thinking um and recognize that i think eventually the eventually truth will triumph i, I mean i think people i think the anti-vaxxer movement and the deniers will begin to recede to the margins i, I am hopeful about that um uh, but it's, it's not, it's going to take a while. It's going to take a while. You know, it's, you, you're, you're, you're an historian of disaster. Usually disasters are not rolling in the same kind of way. This is a rolling disaster, right. you know, constantly changing, evolving, morphing. And, and, and then it, 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 it's not one thing. It's certainly not like 9-11, which, you know, if there was an event as you and I have talked a lot about if there was an event that a single event that changed history that 9/11 was that event i mean and, and and given the fact that nothing changes there's no event in history that changes everything but to the extent that you can mark a change in in the in, in the country and the and the world with 9/11 it certainly had that that kind of role Somehow, the COVID is on that order of significance, and yet we can't get our arms around it. Yeah. It, yeah. it, it is constantly, it's a rolling disaster. I, I, I agree with you. I think it's more like the nuclear and uh, climate change in that sense that um, it's diffuse. The tragedy is obvious. It's in touching everyone, everywhere, at every scale. But you're right in this. I've never been able to figure out if it's psychosocial or if it's political or it's multi. It's just multi-causal, probably. But historically, events become of disasters when they are sort of boiled down to an event that gives a sort of a place to plant a flag, and that's not always a good thing because it those events might last for long periods of time. But nine eleven plant a flag and build a memorial. Exactly. Right. And lay and lay a wreath and right. shed a tear and share a poem and hold hands and light a candle and move on. And, and I'm, I'm right. making that sound very simple. But in many ways, those are the images we associate with September 11. I mean, I wanted to ask you about this to follow up on September 11. I mean, do you think people in the longer run of things, do you think September 11 will be more thoroughly memorialized than COVID? It's already more thoroughly memorialized. There's no memorialization of COVID. I find that amazing. Yeah. I think 20 years from now, that may actually be the case. Yeah, I know. I mean, where where is there any kind of of memorialization? Which is, in a, as you say, you plant a flag, you 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 develop memories, and you have an opportunity, a place 
to shed the tear, to to let yourself uh, uh, be sad and remember uh, and and honor. Um, you know, what are you going to plant that flag outside of the the uh, uh, emergency room of the Queens Hospital? I mean, there there's just no such place like that. You know, I wanted to say one thing, I, I, which is. Uh, Maybe a bit of a stretch, but I, I, I think I, I think it's at a, a deep level of of unconsciousness in the culture. There is there is a sense I think of the way of COVID touching climate change, and one of one of the ways in which COVID fears of COVID become apocalyptic, and and in on the face of it, it's not apocalyptic. I mean, it's a terrible disease and a lot of people have died, but there's 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 never been a danger that it's apocalyptic in the sense that it could wipe out human human humans on the earth, right? The human experiment. But COVID comes from nature. It 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 it's it jumped from the animals to humans in Wuhan. And 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 spread, and therefore nature, nature's dangerous. Uh, and 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 I think there's a I think there's an unconscious connection between the death anxiety associated with COVID, and the apocalyptic fears of climate change, and that nature, nature is dying. And, and 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 as nature dies, humans humans die, and we could, you know, as we know, I mean, we could poison the waters and 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 the air so that humans, you know, it's an apocalyptic threat that that, that all humans we we could kill ourselves literally, and and so I, I think that that's I I don't think that's too much of a stretch to talk about. And, and I think it's an intriguing idea and, and may account or at least begin to suggest some of the reasons for the deep confusions about COVID. Hmm. Why, why are people so crazy in, in, in connecting COVID to, you know, wild conspiracy kinds of ideas? Um, and, it, and it may be because it's and, and also the political opposition. The political opposition is 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 associated with you know sort of anti climate change. Mm-hmm. It's you know there's one interesting part of that. I mean, so much of what you're saying there that um, the the consp- one thing that's consistent with the conspiracy thinking is it does put the agency in the hand of people, in the hands of human actors, and they might be there. It's the government or or some international cabal, whatever it is. I'm thinking you're talking about the zoonosis of COVID and the debate around the lab, the lab leak conspiracy that it was somehow um, either leaked from a lab or it was, you know, weaponized COVID because there's a lab where there's some people in China doing nefarious things. And my thought for that was always, if that's what scares you, you're missing the bigger picture here, right? That human beings are, of course, there's an interaction with nature, but the bigger picture is a, a global picture of humans and animals in much closer relation that's allowing this kind of zoonosis, this zoonotic spillover to take place. 
So in, in some odd ways, I've, I've thought about this, that, you know, maybe conspiracy theorists actually, this is a way they cope with their, with the big fear. Exactly. No, it, 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 it gives, it, it, it gives human agency. Right. If it's, if it's a, a, a malevolent act of a bad government yeah. and, and intentionally releasing it from a secret lab. Yeah. Then, then you just find the bad government agent and you put them on trial and you're good. And you're and you're good, right? And eventually we'll get over the disease and we can move on. But you know, there. I mean, there is yeah. that, and that idea is one of the ideological fragments that the that the right wing and the conspiracists mm-hmm. have have grabbed onto. That's a very mm-hmm. important idea for conspiracy thinkers. You know, for QAnon kind of people. Yeah, I had a, a I had a colleague recently tell me. Uh, uh, Todd Gitlin, who just died, and and Todd. I know you were close to Todd, and I'm sorry about your loss. And he yeah, was no, such no, a no. core member of the Wellfleet community, and what a genius! My God. Yeah, no, he really was. But we were talking about about uh, QAnon, and he he was urging me to go out and interview, which I would love to go out and interview. You know, <laughs> that what a scholarship is is taken a hit from COVID, among among For other sure. things. Um, but but uh, Todd told me he said. He said, you know, I think QAnon is Strozier spelled backwards. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, exactly. That's funny. Um, let, let me remind folks you're listening to COVID calls and uh, talking with Chuck Strozier today. Um, there's another issue I wanted to get to, Chuck, but just to get into the depth of your writing and research over the years. I mean, you're a, a great scholar of Abraham Lincoln and, and of 19th century America. And the Civil War, I've wondered if your deep knowledge of the Civil War has come to you in this time in, in some useful ways. We were talking about mourning before and sort of societal level mourning, but also around trust and the bre- breaking trust and the possibility of rebuilding trust. I'm not sure it was ever successfully rebuilt after the Civil War in America. Maybe it wasn't. But i had been wanting to ask you this question how the Civil War, how Lincoln comes to you at this time in some useful historical analogical ways? Well, the, I mean, <laughs> there's, there's so much to uh, uh, say about that. And, you know, the, the, the Civil War was undoubtedly the key historical event where Americans struggled with mass death. So that, you know, far and away, I mean, the single battle of Shiloh in 1862, there were more deaths than the sum total of all wars up to that point in American history. And, you know, the latest count is 720,000 people dead and, and another million, million and a half maimed for life. So that, you, you know, the, the 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 uh, Vietnam was fifty thousand people dead. So I mean, you, you know, the scale of suffering and death in uh, the Civil War was uh, uh, enormous, and 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 Lincoln uh, uh, Lincoln felt ter- he he embodied a sense of humanity and care and leadership uh, that that one can that resonates with with 
a leader who we yearn for, who who can honor that uh, honor that loss and and recognize that we have to we we have to live with it. We have to understand it. We have to you know with malice toward none with charity for all, which is the, the, the last paragraph of the second inaugural, is, is a kind of uh, a sense that he, he, he brought to the country an awareness and it's an insistence that we, that we think of the, we think of the death and, and, and honor it in a way that is humane and, 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 and appropriate. You know, appropriate loss, and it's so different from the crass, corrupt images of Donald Trump, which which which, which is anti uh, anti mourning. You know, it's it 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 creates contributes to that. What I was saying earlier is a kind of an impaired mourning in 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 the culture. We we're not allowed to think about it. You know, there's all this obsession with 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 uh, as, as we were saying, with, with sort of fragments and conspiracies and weird ideas on, on, on the right. Um, and I think Lincoln, one of the appealing things, and I've gone back to some of the, some of the great speeches just to, hmm. just to remind myself again uh, of, of, of the power and, and the, that, that, that voice hmm. that, that encourages us not to run away from the death, but the large scale death and the suffering, but to honor it and, 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 and move, not move onto in the sense of moving away from, but to bind up the wounds of the war and, mm. and, 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 and with charity for all, you know, Lincoln knew suffering from disease, in his own family. I mean, there's really interesting analogies and important ones here in his own family. And then of course, his own responsibility for deaths in the civil war, which weighed on him, obviously, tremendously. Did he reflect on that we, issue of scale? Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. That's, he was keenly aware. I mean, we, we, we would not have had the war that we had, but for the leadership of Abraham Lincoln. Right. Uh, I think any other uh, leader would have, compromised early on. Now, you know, I think it's one can contend with that and one one can question the did we really need to fight the war that was fought? But it was a it was a noble war in the sense that it it moved from a limited in, in the beginning, the limited goal of saving the Union. Um, you know, I've always said who really needs Alabama? Um, or or Texas, I know you're you're from Texas, but you know the the European continent was broken apart into a lot of nation states. So right. maybe the United States could have could have become a, a collection of different states. But it moved from that limited goal to one of of of, of a war for human freedom right. and ending of slavery and and to try to move. Not only ending slavery, but Lincoln's central vision of trying to move the country toward living in a complex biracial society. Is there an American leader today, Joe Biden, 
somebody else who has the rhetorical power, the empathetic skill to give broader meaning to COVID in the year that's coming in front of us now? Well, at the very least, he's, he's a hell of a lot better than Donald Trump. Um, and I think he is, you know, he has that, he has that sense. He, he has that, that he has the soul. Right. Of, of a great leader. Um, I'm not sure he can quite match up to Lincoln, but he is, is a, you know, he's, he's, he's an impressive figure. He, he doesn't have the words for expressing the, the monumental loss that we have suffered, but I don't think anybody has the words because we, we, we can't comprehend it. You know, it's this disaster with 900,000 people dead. And what, how do you, how do you even think about that? I think even Lincoln would have had trouble thinking about it. Incidentally, you, you ask you one thing that I actually was in a seminar a couple of weeks ago talking about this. Lincoln, the the Shakespearean play, he, he he loved Shakespeare. He knew Shakespeare very well. As a child, he read two things. He read the Bible and he read mm-hmm. Shakespeare. Mm-hmm. Now, you know, if you read those carefully, that's <laughs> yeah. that's pretty good reading. Right? Sure. <laughs> but he and he 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 really knew he had all of the major soliloquies of Shakespeare memorized. Um <clears throat> and uh, but his favorite play was Macbeth. Mm. And uh, which is the play of, you know, guilt for the killing of Duncan and, yeah, and, sure. and Macbeth struggles with it. And his wife says, you know, do it, do it and just steal yourself to it. And, um, but in, in, in when Richmond fell on April 12th, actually the same day as um, Appomattox, which was going off, you know, elsewhere. But uh, April 12th, when, when Richmond fell, and it, you know, it was clearly the end of the war, he took a steamer down to uh, visit war-torn uh, Richmond. Hmm. And um, the, the freed blacks, the freed slaves, fell at his feet to honor him. And he was, he was, he was, uh, 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 he, he did not encourage that at all. He right. resisted it. But he went and he sat, hmm. he, he went to the desk of Jefferson Davis and sat at the desk and um, and walked around uh, the destroyed Richmond and then went back to the steamer and read the entire Macbeth mm. and parts of it he read twice so i think he was he was he was honest in struggling you know guilt is too stupid a word yeah. to describe in that context but he 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 didn't he honored the fact that he was the one who had made such a big war. It was his political leadership that led to uh, this huge war. And, and he, he, he couldn't escape from that, you know, and, I don't and think that that's a theme of Macbeth Shakespeare's Macbeth more than any other play. I don't think Donald Trump has the, um, well, I don't know the man. I don't think he has has never shown the capacity to locate his own complicity in the violence of COVID. But yes, but, but maybe some in time, some who were around him. I don't I, I don't give up on this, you know, and again, maybe this is just part of studying history and coming from the South, too. I don't give up on the idea that there will there should be an opportunity for those who've made mistakes in this time 
to repent of those to come around to do better. Because I do worry about moving into a period in American history where the, the sort of tension and bipolar, bipolarity is becomes irresolvable. And I'm not talking about a second civil war. I'm talking about something in some ways that's more diffuse than that, but still could be quite violent. And so I think we need, we need somebody, we need people, it won't be Trump, but those who are around him need a way to take stock of their mistakes, I think. I just don't know how that will happen. I think that acceptance of, of responsibility by leaders would uh, uh, activate a much more responsible um, response of many people in the population. Yeah. Um, and I think the, the guilt is to feed, you know, on the one hand, to acknowledge that with Trump, to acknowledge that he was vaccinated, but then to encourage the kind of boisterous anti anti vaxxer kind of uh, attitudes, um, which which are criminal, you know, and 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 I think with leadership of of acknowledging mistakes and faults that led to the deaths of people would 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 result in a in a in a much more healthy kind of public discourse around these issues of loss and death. You know, there's a little bit like, you know, uh, 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 Lifton, and, and, and I've borrowed this, plagiarized this from him for many years. He, 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 he always talked about having been one of the great theoreticians of the anti-nuclear movement for half a century. Um, he, he said the goal, it, 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 it's, it's the goal is a fear that's appropriate to the danger. Mm -hmm. What doesn't help is hysterical fear. What doesn't help is exaggerated fear, um, and 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 nor apocalyptic language that oh it's all over tomorrow and we might as well give it all up and you know right. and either commit suicide or go into the woods and live alone. That's not helpful. What, what's what's helpful is appropriate fear. And, and 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 it 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 carries over. I think it's I think it's relevant for COVID. We need to we need to recognize that this kills us, hmm. but it's totally manageable right. if you get the vaccine and you get the you get the booster. And, and I think that's what behind you know the sort of tepid response to Queen Elizabeth today, get testing testing positive. You know, I mean, I I'm sure she's had the best possible care. And, and and the early indications are that it's her suffering nothing worse than a common cold. I want to um, just remind folks you've been listening to COVID calls, and uh, as usual, when I talk to Chuck Strozier, I lose track of time, and uh, <laughs> uh, we probably should should close. But um, I've missed talking with you, Chuck, and uh, I'm glad you're doing well, and I really appreciate this time and having your voice in the archive and uh, I look forward to talking with you again soon, I hope. Great. Well, it's been a pleasure to be here and, and to join you again and uh, this remarkable project that you've uh, inaugurated that there will be a, a priceless archive for uh, future historians. Stay healthy, everyone. We'll see you next time on COVID calls. Thanks, Chuck.